Hey guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. Hey CPD Junkie podcast fam, I'm your host Lawrence Doan and today we're joined by Dr. Tiv. Clinician for 15 years, Dr. Tiv focused on his career on communication, practice management and clinical excellence. He turned a two-chair practice into six plus chairs in a few years with only 20 new patients a month. Now he trains and mentors new graduates and aspiring practice owners on efficient ways to upskill and become productive. Always giving back to the dental community, he started a YouTube channel that provides tips and hacks for dentists and patients alike. Dr. Tiv, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lawrence. I'm so excited to be here. Let's, <laughs> let's get on to this. Let's get lots of information out to your audience. Yeah. But before we jump into your dental journey, can you talk about your firefighting background with the country fire authorities? Wow, you've done your research. Yeah, so um, when we moved to, to um, uh, Balnaring, um, where the practice is, my wife and I were here for a few years and we didn't really make too many friends because it's very clicky. And we used to go to, to Victoria or to the CBD, basically, to meet up with our friends all the time. And one day my wife was like, we need to make some friends. We need to join a club. I'm like, okay, let's, like, let's join a club. And she comes up and says, let's be firefighters. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, You can't just become a firefighter. I thought we were going to be like the people that serve the teas and coffees to like the firefighter people. And she's like, no, no, we can like go and fight fires. So we, we signed up. Um, we went through six months worth of training, which wow. was pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, twice weekly for six months. Um, and they taught us about firefighting, how to put out fires, um, how to keep ourselves safe if there's like a burnover and uh, jump in the truck and like survive those kinds of things. And yeah, I've been a member for six years now, I think. So, so your time goes on. So put out a few fires in my time. Wow. I mean, yeah, not just at the practice, but all around, hey? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Actually, yeah, that should be my new title, right? Like Dr. Tiv put out spot fires in your practice and out. That's right. That's right. And then you're going to be coming down the pole. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's no pole. There's no pole. It's an, it's an American thing. It doesn't happen in Australia. <laughs> Occupational health and safety. Like, I was like, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the pole? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into your passion for communication and practice management. So tell us how your CPD dental journey kind of all started from when you were graduating. So when I graduated, it's a bit like all graduates, I guess. You come out with a certificate that tells you you can do whatever you want, but you know very little about anything. You know, most of us, when we graduate, we've done like, what, two root canals and maybe four or five crowns and maybe one or two dentures. Um, and so there's this big, like, gap in knowledge base that we, that we all have. Um, CPD wasn't as um, easy to get back when I graduated. And so it was much harder to find courses that you liked. And, and I guess part of the problem was when you're a new grad, you're, you're poor um, and CPD is expensive. And so you try to cheap out. So at the start, I started doing a lot of the, um, you know, ADA courses or, you know, the, 
the Edia magazine used to have like this thing you used to fill out and send to them and they'd give you some CPD points for it. Yeah. I spent a lot of, you guys remember that, right? So I spent a lot <laughs> of time doing that to begin with and just absorbing from my principal dentist. That's where my CPD probably started off. Um, and, you know, right now having a mentor is like a catchphrase in the dental community. We all think, oh, wow, we've got to have a great mentor. But back then it wasn't really, I guess, so well established that that's what you needed. So you just find a job. And if you happen to get a good mentor, then that was great. Um, but if you didn't, then you didn't realize how bad it was because there's nowhere to communicate with anyone else. Mm. You kind of were like stuck in your own little world and you didn't know what was happening. Um, so I ended up working in a place in Warrigal. Um, great place. But the philosophy of the practice was so different to what I do now. So they would see 20 or 30 patients a day. Um, and the appointments were like 20 to, you know, 20 to 25 minutes long. Um, and I remember my boss sitting me down and telling me, look, you can't scare people with indirect work. You need to know them for at least three years before you mention, you know, that they need a crown done. And we're doing a lot of patch and fill work the whole time. Um, and at that point, you know, I learned a lot about extractions um a lot about removal pros but my but i was lacking in a whole bunch of things i remember my uh the principal dentist at that time was still doing hand endo like uh, you know with hand files yeah. and i wanted to do rotary endo and he was like well no that's that's too out there like you know that's like dangerous i hear you can break files so we're not going to do that so that's where i guess i had to take it on my own accord to decide what i wanted to to be good at like if I just stayed with the status quo, and this is going to be a constant theme, I guess, through this talk, is if you stay with the status quo, you tend to do what everyone else does. Mm. You need to, to break out of that mold. You've got to start doing things that other people aren't doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in my day, that was rotary endo. So wow. like anything that you want to learn, you can't just do one course and expect to be great at it. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. I did like four or five rotary endo courses. Um, I ended up buying my own ro- rotary um, handpiece as well. Yes. Um, which I didn't think anything about. Um, I was just like, well, if I want to do it and it's not available, then rather than restricting my own development, let me just help myself and I'll buy my own bits. Yes. Um, and I did. And I still, I still have it to this day, you know, 15 years later. It's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing. Um, <laughs> and I bought it and I tried it on plastic teeth and extracted teeth. Um, so I'm a big proponent of not practicing on our patients. So I say this when I teach as well. Like if you learn something new, don't practice on your patients. The first person you do this thing on shouldn't be on a live person. You know, we have plastic heads and we have like Fasacos and all those things for a reason. So practice on all those things. And eventually, you know, I started and it was, you know, the sweat was running down my face. I knew I had no support to back me up. Um, but eventually I got, got through it. I mean, I did have my fair share of, of file separations and things as you as you're learning but it's just part and parcel of the of the process yeah that was that was a real the real start of it um i didn't realize how bad i was at communication um until i bought my own practice but that's that's another story <laughs> well we'll dive into that in a little bit later but let's 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 focus on this little the early doctor t- um uh, doctor yeah. right now so so you're graduating you, you join a practice you know, yes. um, you're just doing CPD, just filling out the forms, you know, you're doing the quizzes and all of that. 
um, for I guess a lot of the newer ones they're like what is this but like you know you still see it around in a few some of the uh, magazines and stuff like that um, yeah. so you're doing that and um, you're very not doing a lot of CPD in terms of like um, courses like and um, practical courses um, but the f one of the earliest ones that you found very um, was a game changer for you was doing uh, rotary endos is that what you're saying yeah it was um, only only because there was a big gap in my knowledge base in rotary endos so you know we didn't really learn much about it at uni we we started working or we hand filing and at that point you know when you did a molar endo it was too difficult to do with with hand files um, mm -hmm. you know you'd translate very 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 easily so you'd refer all those off so i was referring you know a lot of work off to endodontists um or uh, you know other specialists yeah but my patients because we were in rural victoria didn't want to go so yeah. they were like look dr tube you know it's an hour and a half drive there and back it's going to be three times you know yeah. it's a long time can you just do it for me and i was like uh yes <laughs> but then i was stuck because i was like now what do i do i've said yes and yeah. i don't really know how to do it what do i do so you know commence the endo held them off for a few months while i started learning you know this new process and procedures yeah. And I guess part of the trouble with hands-on courses is they're so expensive, you know, you know, five, six, seven thousand dollars for a for a weekend for a course. That's that's a lot of money, and you need yeah. to be able to make sure that you can get good value out of it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, right? So, like, uh, so many touching points here, but like, you're to your point. Um, without, I just want to dive on the point that. Just because your practice owner didn't get the equipment or wasn't supporting you, you still went out and got the equipment. I think for that as well, that that's a different change in mindset for a lot of associates as well. They're thinking, I'm just going to find a practice. They should supply it for me. But if they don't supply it for me, I'm just going to hate them. But to your point, you know, that's just on you. You can just go out and get the equipment yourself. That's exactly right. So you see it on a lot of the forums now where there's a lot of hate when, you know, they don't get supplied the equipment they need. And, you know, people are saying that's the 60% I'm paying and so forth. And sure, that is a mindset you could have. But how restrictive is that mindset to you? And that's mm -hmm. a question you need to be asking. Um, there's this concept that I teach that, you know, people want to to get something different. Like they want to do something different to what they're doing now. But before that, you need to, to do something different. So to get something different, you need to do something different. And everyone knows this. But the thing that no one talks about, in order to do something different, you need to think something different. Like if you're thinking just like everyone else is, like, you know, ask the audience, then you're going to do what, what the audience does. And then you're going to get what the audience does. And you're going to be right down the middle of that, that bell curve. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was like, well, look, I could stunt my own growth by just being really ready at my principal dentist by saying he should be providing me with a rotary endo system, even though he doesn't believe in it. But I was like, you know what? Like, it's part of my CPD course is to, is to buy this. A bit like Bond as well. Uh, you know, I think they were using SE Bond back then, which was good. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to go to fourth gen. I wanted to get OptiBond mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much research about it. I, you know, went to some, later on, I went to some really good courses like Pascal Manier and things. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, if they're not going to get it, let me just get it because that way I get to like increase my own growth faster. I'm, I'm impatient. Like that's, <laughs> that's the thing, right? Like you could, you could sit around and wait for these things to happen. It probably will eventually happen. But by the time you wait two or three years, 
like for you to get like the bond that you want by the time it goes through the chain of command and, and back again. I might as well just spent like $200 and bought my own and developed myself straight away. And that, that's the thing I think a lot is, is missing in this current interpretation of, of running your own practice is that the biggest asset you have is not some money, but it's time. Mm-hmm. Like how quickly can you, can you increase your knowledge base so you can do more stuff? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so that's, that's what I think. And that's what I encourage, you know, dentists now is if you want to do something like you're in control, like if you want to wait for someone to, if you want to be passive, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be active, nothing's stopping you. Just go out and get the thing that you want and then start doing it. Yeah. And then you want, so buying the files, you just kept buying your, your own rotary files, right? Cause they- yeah, so I start, so this is what happens, right? So you, you, I bought my equipment. I started my own rotary files and I started doing more endo work. And then my boss was like, Oh, huh, he's making some income. So then when that ran out, he was like, well, let me buy it for you. And so then he started buying the files for me and then yeah. buying all the, then I wanted to um, do the, uh, the pro tape obturation technique. Yeah. And so then he's like, well, if you're already doing that, well, let me just get you that bit. And so it kind of like started the, the flow. Yeah. I think that's part of what um, owners like to see is if an associate takes on some responsibility and some ownership, then they're going to be more than willing to usually like help grow that, that growth spurt. Mm-hmm. It becomes a win-win. But you just need to, you need to be the catalyst is what I reckon. You need to like start that process. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And um, so that happens, you're doing, so, you know, you're taking on these big cases of endo, right? And then you're probably thinking, <laughs> oh, if I do this hand file, if I do this rotary, it's still going to take me a long time, right? Yes. So yes. how are you kind of managing through that little pickle? So, so time, t- again, time is a big restricting factor in dentists. Um, I guess there's two scenarios. I was lucky enough that because I was learning my principal dentist was happy for me to allocate my own time um and look you kind of write off production for the first few years um the way i i use a lot of analogies you probably know this already Lawrence. Uh, <laughs> but but i i used to be a really big rts fan real-time strategy fan so you know like age of empires that kind of thing where <laughs> you know where you you start off with one guy and you end up with an army at the end and you, yeah. you, you battle it out and in all those games, you don't go to like win the game in the first, you know, 15 minutes. What do you spend your time doing? Just building. You spend it on resources, right? You spend it on accumulating resources or making it, uh, getting modifiers so that whatever you do later on is stacked. And so for the first few years, I just thought to myself, look, forget about the income that I'm earning. Because if I can get good at stuff early on, and get these modifiers that like stack on later on in my career, then if I can be really good at a few things, then it's going to make it much easier later on in life. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't worried about the income I was making personally to begin with. Maybe my boss was, I don't know, but he, I guess he figured that the same thing. If I, if I got good at certain things, then in the long run, it would be better. And so I just spent the time that I needed. So I'd spent, I'd put aside three hours for an endo. Like that's what I do at the start. Wow. Uh, yeah. Because I was like, the worst thing, the worst thing to ever happen to a dentist is to have things go wrong and having two or three patients stacked up waiting for you. And your nurses are like, you're 30 minutes late, you're 60 minutes late. Mrs. Jones has left the building. She's really angry. 
And so I didn't want that. I wanted to give myself the time. So same thing with crown preps too. Um, I used to give myself two hours for crown preps for the first maybe two years, uh, which is a heap of time. Mm-hmm. But I just want to make sure that I did it really well. And as as it got better, I just found that my time would automatically reduce. And when I was finishing half an hour early, I just reduced to 90 minutes. And when I used to finish half an hour early again, I just reduced it to an hour. So eventually I got down to an hour for an, an endo and an hour for a, a crown prep uh, in my younger days. Um, but at the start, it was long. If you don't have an associate, if you don't have a principal dentist that's accommodating of it, that makes it tricky. That mm. makes it tricky. But it generally, if, you, if you're running late and patients are upset, the practice will be like, give yourself more time. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you, endos where you kind of start out, right? Yes. And then you mentioned communication was something that you're going to dive into a little bit later. Was there something in between? Exo. Exo. Um, again, because we were in rural Victoria, um, we wanted, p- patients wanted to have teeth pulled out. Um, and if they were, if we sent them off somewhere else, it was an hour drive there. And secondly, um, I thought to myself, well, EXO was the best way to get rid of any evidence. So <laughs> something didn't go right. And we took it out. Then no one was the wiser. So for me, I was like, EXO was the one thing that I thought would would be the, I don't think it was the make or break, but it'd be the one thing that would help my patients out the most if I could do it really well. Mm-hmm. This is nothing worse than being in pain or having half a tooth taken out and being told, sorry, you need to go to see the specialist. It's an hour and a half drive away. While you, you're numb, you've got the gauze pack, you're probably bleeding, you're trying to drive there and get it done. It was just not a practice builder. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's what I had to do. So I did a few courses on, on wisdom teeth and extractions. Um, which I got, I got good at. Um, but then later on, I realized there wasn't a great practice builder either because I was the guy that hurt people. So then I, I kind of managed it a little bit where I was like, if it was an emergency that had to be done, I'd do it. But if it was not if it was non-critical, then I'd send off to a specialist to get it done. So that was, that was my intermediary thing that I did was endo and then exo. Mm-hmm. So then- and more restorative too, I guess. Yeah. So around this four or five year mark, which for a lot of um, graduates as well, they start to contemplate practice ownership or being a specialist or being a super GP. Yeah. What happened in your Well, for me, what happened was the practice got bought out by a corporate group um, and it wasn't fun. Um, it went from a really you know, family oriented practice to, to very corporate and by the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it was did, a husband and wife kind of relationship at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, that it was. Practice. It was a husband and wife, which was fantastic. Like, you know, they take me I, because I was living by myself and I was eating crappy food once a week. They take me to their place and give me a good feed and stuff and and come back. And so it was it was really fun and like 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 a family, uh, you know, the staff would hang out and we'd go out for dinner and things like that. And then when we became corporate, it became almost too much about the numbers. Mm-hmm. Like we have someone from Sydney fly down and they'd be going over our numbers and telling us, you know, we're not as productive as some other uh, clinician was, or, you know, something. You can't like have that. three hour endo treatments. Well, you anymore. can't have three hour endos. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't work with the model. So how do you, how do you learn? Um, and I think this is at the very start of corporate, uh, corporatization as well. Um, I think they've gotten a lot better, but this was at the very, very, very start. And so at that point I was like, well, I've got to find another place to work. 
because I don't think I'll be happy here. Um, I mean, at that point, my the the principal owner asked me to buy the practice, um, and I sh- I probably should have bought the practice. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you look at the numbers, I think it was like one and a half mil or two mil, and you know, when you're when you're that young, you're like, uh, <laughs> no, I can't. I like that's that's a lot of zeros. Like I don't know what to do with that many zeros. Just the interest repayments alone was like, like did my head in yeah so and i thought it was too early too early for me at that point i mean hindsight it was it was probably quite a cheap buy so i probably should have should have taken it but i didn't know enough back then um so i got i applied for five different jobs four different jobs sorry um and i got all four and i accepted all four and so i was doing hundreds of kilometers a week you know, going from Warrigal to Beaconsfield to Melbourne CBD to, to uh, Red Hill and a few other places. And I did that for a little while. Um, and I really enjoyed that because I was kind of like the, the dental hero. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd only be at a place one day a week and I'd rock up and everyone was excited to see me and, you know, wasn't involved in any of the politics of the practice and I'd go in <laughs> and save the day and then I'd leave again. It was, it was kind of fun. You were um, the superstar. I was a superstar. Um, but at that point, um, I was on dental job search, which sells practices. And I saw a practice for sale that I was driving by every day. And so I walked in and I, and I asked them, um, you know, I, I said, is a practice for sale? And he was like, yes. And we negotiated and we, and I bought the practice. And that's when I realized I had no clue as to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Like the, the one good thing, of looking at practice ownership at four to five years is you've got a lot of the clinical stuff, the basic clinical stuff sorted mm-hmm. and you can do a, a restoration pretty well. You can do endos reasonably well. You can do you know, simple crown and bridge stuff. Um, but then you get into this whole aspect of communication with patients because now it's your own, your own practice and you know, it lives or dies by the way you treat the patients and communicate with them. Yeah. Um, and then you've got this whole staff management thing, which I thought I was going to be good at. I mean, it's like all communication, right? Like when you put your hand up, when you ask the question, you know, who's better than average driver, the stats show us about 85% of people think they're more than above average, yeah. which is factually not true. Yeah. And I think it's worse with communication. When you ask someone, if, are you a good communicator? I think it'd be in the high nineties is what you get. And I see in all the resumes I receive, I've not had one resume that has not said I'm a good communicator. That's the one thing they always say. And secondly, they always say they work great alone or with teams. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's multi, multi um, faceted in terms of who they can work with and everyone's a great communicator. But I noticed that there was big issues and that's where I was like, I got to do more, more training in this. Yeah. So you're saying that um, you weren't considering specializing. You weren't considering being a super. You, you're interested in. I mean, uh, you were interested in the practice ownership side because you came across the website that was. Um, yeah. That um, got your attention. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I was interested in practice ownership because I read this book called "Rich Dad Poor Dad" by yeah. Robert Kiyosaki. Um, I think that caused a lot of mental damage to me. When I was <laughs> Because I was in this mind concept that, you know, I want passive income and I want to be able to like sit back on a beach somewhere and like just have money flowing in. Yeah. Um, So I I contemplated specializing, but there's two things that I, I didn't like about it. One was 
I'd be restricted to just one bit of dentistry. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the more time and effort I put in on my own training meant that I became the sole, you know, income. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Like when you're a specialist, it's you, like you're the, you're the guy. So, you know, according to Robert Kiyosaki, like if that was it, then I'd never be able to get passive income because mm-hmm. I'd have to work. I'd have to trade my time for, for money. Yeah. So I had this concept that I was going to like buy a whole heap of dental practices and have them all passively incomed and people are going to like come in and I just yeah. sit back at a beach somewhere and, and sit pretty. Um, I've come to realize that that's a lot harder to, to do Mm-hmm. than the books suggest mm-hmm. and i think part of it is because we're a we're a personal service industry mm-hmm. like, you know you we're not selling a product you can't rubber stamp it you know among lots of practices correct you know, if yeah. patients like dr tiv it's very hard to say now see dr lawrence mm-hmm. uh, they'll be like no no dr tiv is the guy that i built trust with so so it, it becomes it becomes a harder model to to master people have done it um but I don't think it's as easy as say, you know, a McDonald's burger or, you know, like a product that you can Correct. You know, replicate. I want, um, I actually, you kind of beat me to the question because I was going to ask you about that, that a lot of associates or, or, or recent graduates at this point, they think what you just mentioned, which is great, I'm going to buy a practice. I'm just going to hire a whole bunch of associates. It's just going to be passive. I'm just going to live the life. And then I, you know, to your point, it's, no, we're, we're in a person-to-person kind of uh, a service kind of industry where it's not to your point not a product you can't just you know people just can't buy the same shirt and expect it the same or like buy the same mcdonald's and expect it to taste the same mm-hmm. yeah it's it's true um and i i see it all the time um you know young young dentists buy a practice and they come asking me for help saying like why can't i get three associates now like it's been six months and i'm still working there um, <laughs> it's it's the factor of this industry um mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone's cracked that nut yet in terms of you know the because we deal with anxiety um and we deal with personality and we deal with a service that people only come reluctantly to get mm-hmm. you know sometimes i fantasize about owning a, a bar where people would enjoy spending money with me <laughs> rather than a dental clinic where they're, where they're like, I, I guess I'll pay you some money to do this work. It's not, it's not fun, but I need it in the long run. Um, and so all these factors combined with the fact that every dentist is different makes it really hard to, to replicate. Mm-hmm. And the big, the big thing that most associates find is when they go from being an associate to an owner, they now realize why their previous owners did what they did and why they shouldn't have been so upset with them, you know, back when they were associates, because it all starts, starts making sense. Yeah. Uh, I think every associate should be owner at least once. So they have some concept of, of, you know, what it's really like to, to be an owner because I, I was the same. I thought it'd be easy because when I was, when I was at, um, at the other practice and was an associate, the staff loved me, you know, like, I'd walk in, we'd have fun, we'd chat, we'd laugh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I remember one point in practice ownership at the very start where I, where I walked into the staff room, they were all talking and laughing. Yeah. And as soon as I walked in, it was like dead quiet. Yeah. They'd stop talking. And I awkwardly went and got a cup of water from the, from the kitchen and 
and walked out again and they all started talking again. And I was like, wow, like, like this is real. Like I'm, I'm the owner guy now. Like yeah. as much as I wanted to be the friendly associate as an owner, something about it just makes people not treat you that way. Yeah. Um, you're perceived differently. Got, you're, you're seen differently. And I think you act differently too, because now it's your own wallet on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, as an associate, the worst that can happen is you get zero dollars. As an owner, the worst that can happen is you lose everything you've spent your entire life getting to right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the stakes are a lot higher. So, so you tend not to be as easygoing with things, I think. Yeah. So you, you, you're into the practice ownership now. And then you say that in, early in your journey, communication was something that you needed to develop on. So you're attending a whole bunch of communication kind of courses. Were you recording yourself as well? Or are you getting like... Uh, I wasn't at that stage. So my feedback loop was the number of patients that would leave the practice after speaking to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, because, you know, with, with a practice when you're, with an asso- with, when you're an associate, the principal dentist holds a lot of the, the cachet, you know, patients, if they don't like you, will just go back to the principal dentist. So yeah. you don't tend to see, you know, patients leaving the practice, but when you're the principal dentist, a patient see you and you get a records request, it like, it really gets you deep. You're mm-hmm. like, what did I do? Like I was trying to help them. You know, there's a crack on that tooth. It needed a crown. Like, I don't understand like what was going on. Um, and I realized that I was really bad at communicating. I was really bad at communicating with patients what I was thinking. Yeah. So I tell them what they needed and some would, if they trusted me, would, would go ahead with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they didn't trust me, then they wouldn't. And so there's a few factors that made them not trust me. You know, I looked really young. Um, and so, you know, we got a lot of, look, I want to do it, but do you have someone older here? Um, I was also probably not so confident back mm-hmm. then. So, you know, dentists have a price range that they're confident with. Mm-hmm. So if you're used to doing fillings, you know, two or $3,000 is your confident range. If you do a treatment plan for two or $3,000, you're okay. Um, but if you do the treatment plan for $15,000, all of a sudden you start, you know, double guessing yourself. You're like, um, can I do this? Do I know yeah. how to do this? Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes in your brain. Yeah. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of judgmental factors we have on patients as well that we don't like to accept, but I realize that we're doing it. Like, you know, if the patient looked angry at me, then I wouldn't give them the best treatment option because I was too scared that they'd, they yell at me. Um, I didn't want rejection. So if I thought they were going to reject me, I'd like change my treatment plan. Um, if they came in in a fancy car, I would assume that they'd be able to afford more. So I was doing everything that I shouldn't have been doing. I was kind of doing, um, and that's because I had no real concept of it. I, there was no, there's no one to pin me on and be like, Hey, you know, just because they look angry mm-hmm. doesn't mean you should restrict your treatment options. I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds bizarre yeah. that a dentist would not present a treatment option because they're afraid of rejection. Yeah. Not to us because we're that person. But to the outside, like to a patient, it sounds bizarre. It's like if you went to a doctor and you needed something like some brain surgery yeah. and the doctor didn't give you all the options because he was afraid that you'd be rejected or he'd be yeah. rejected. You'd be like, no, you can't do that. Um, but yet we do that all the time. Like, 
you know, when was the last time you offered uh, indirect inlay instead of a filling, like a, a composite? Like, do we do it every time? Not really. Mm. But why are, we, why are we judging that? Like, if the price was the same, would you get indirect? Probably. Like, you know, some yeah. gold foil would be nice. Like, but we don't do it because we, no one knows how to do it anymore, number one. Yes. And number two, it's really expensive, so we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so those were the kind of things that I'd pick up on. And also pick up on that the staff really hated me at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they didn't like me at all. So I was this new new guy that came into their practice and started changing things yeah. and they hated the change and they hated all this stuff. So I really needed help. I got to a really low point. Um, I got to a low point where I was sitting in the car park in front of this practice I'd paid heaps of money for mm-hmm. and I couldn't get out of my car. Like I was like, I just, I just can't do it. Like things weren't, weren't working. Yeah. Um, I forced myself, I'd, you know, I'd open the door and put one front in front of the other and went into the practice. But that's when I realized like I needed, I needed help of, of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I decided to go into the, the communication and practice management, you know, rat. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I do with most things, I just did everything. Um, I did dental communication. I did just sales and marketing. I read books on, on selling. I did pretty much all the practice management things out there. Mm-hmm. Prime Momentum, Linda Miles, Kathy Metaxas. The whole bunch and what i did was i guess i picked and chose bits that i that i liked and made my own thing i guess mm-hmm. my own frankenstein communication approach which worked for me i guess in, in my hands yeah so can you talk to me about that point like um a lot of people you know usually get stuck in a rut and they're just like i oh, just uh, you know they're just um, thinking negative thoughts, but you compelled yourself to go, look, that's it. I, I'm not feeling this way, but I need to change it. I need to go out and do something to reinvigorate myself, to switch it up a little bit. How did you kind of make that switch? Were you talking to colleagues? Were um, you talking to family members? Like, how'd you make the switch? No, it was, I wish I, yeah, I wasn't really. Um, my family wasn't terribly supportive of me having a practice at that time. Okay. Um, you know, they thought it was far too risky and, you know, I shouldn't, you know, be putting everything on the line for this thing. Um, and I really didn't, I mean, communication wasn't as easy. There wasn't forums. There wasn't, you know, areas we could ask questions. And I think I'm, in some ways, I think I'm lucky that's the case. Because mm-hmm. if I did ask in a forum, I think I would have been pigeonholed into doing things that everyone else does. Mm-hmm. So back to what I said before, I knew I wanted to have a different result. Yeah. So I knew I needed to do something differently, mm-hmm. but I, I was uh, switched on enough, I guess, or intuitive enough that I knew I had to think differently about it. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I know I need to think differently about it, I go and get help. Yeah. So I'm like, because I only know the way to think that I know how to think because mm-hmm. I've, you know, that's the only information I have, yeah. but someone else might know how to think differently about these concepts. So that's where I went to, to get help about how do you think differently about this? Mm-hmm. And so once you understand that, you tend to do things differently and then you tend to get a different result. And that's what happened to me. Um, and, you know, these courses are, are, are quite expensive. Um, and so I was really adamant that I was going to get my, my bang for buck for these courses. Yeah. So whatever, whatever they told me to do, I was going to do it. And there's, there's a real good trick about this. Um, 
And, and we all know this, but we're all too lazy to do it. But the thing is, as soon as you learn something, you implement it straight away. Yeah. Like, don't wait for a day. A day, the stats that show, like, after 24 hours, your retention rate is, like, only 50% of what it was the previous day. Mm-hmm. So if I went to a course on a, on a Friday, Saturday, on Sunday, I'd be implementing it with my friends or my family or whatever it is. Whatever that verbal communication was, I'd be trying it. And then I'd try it at the practice. And it was, it was, I, I call it skill practice. So whatever that topic was, I just find a reason to use it in every interaction I'd have. And I just use it over and over and over and over again until it became subconscious. And then I do the thing to the next thing I learned. Because I was like, if I'm paying two or $3,000, I'm going to get my, my, you know, my money's worth. Yeah. I, was too, I was too much of a cheapskate to like, to, to not get my money's worth for that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, look, for a lot of graduates as well, you know, they're in, they've got student debt and then they come out and there's like all these big courses. They're thinking, uh, you know, that I need to get learn author really quickly. I need to learn implants really quickly. I need to do it all kind of together. But these courses are like really expensive as well. Like how do I kind of do that? So look, in terms of, I think there's some courses that, like I was talking about in terms of the game, had add modifiers, so mm-hmm. it ups everything else later on. And I think they're the ones as new grads to prioritize on. Because whether you do ortho in year one or year four, it's going to have very limited impact on, on you know, in 20 years' time. But getting communication down in year one means that every time you do another course, you end up doing more of those procedures all the time. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. if your case acceptance rate is 50% and you do an ortho course, you see 20 people and you get 10 people that accept. Well, that's okay. But if it's at 90% and like nine out of 10, like within only a little amount of time, you can, you can magnify your, you know, the course of return on investment. So I think communication, photography, and probably financial management. They're probably the three things that I think if you set yourself up really early on, Mm-hmm. that you add, I don't know what the word is, modifiers, bonuses, boosts, I don't know, something rather to boost your your life achievements as time goes on. Yeah. Is that clear at all? I don't know if that made any sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if they listen to it really carefully, I'm sure they'll be able to pick it out from what you're trying to say. Um, maybe they might not be able to relate to Age of Empires, but you know. No. <laughs> Um, I don't know, Stark, I don't know. Look, if, if you play, if you play any, any kind of game at all, there is a certain thing that you can get that will mean that rewards are magnified. Um, yes. The CPD on certain topics, which I reckon is communication, photography skills, and financial management will amplify your returns and everything else that you do. Mm-hmm. So if you get those wrong, then you have to work a lot harder for a lot longer to achieve the same results. Right. That's, that's, that's what I found anyway, because once my communication started getting better and look, it's, it's not an easy path, mm-hmm. you know, because I learned like, because I went outside dentistry too. And some of these practice communication skills systems came from America. It was very sales, like very hard salesy. So mm-hmm. one of the courses I went to was like, you just get the best treatment plan that you can for the patient and you just sell it to them. You just tell them what they need and they deserve it and they should get it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. 
I had 50% failure rate in this. Like sometimes people would be like, oh yeah, let's, let's get it done. We need like, you know, all this work. And other yeah. times people are like, you're ripping me off. Like I don't need this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, okay, that didn't work. So let me try something else. And so, so you kind of like, it's, it's not, it's not an easy process, but once you start modifying it to make it work, then you find that everything else speeds up exponentially. Yeah. So how did photography kind of, um, make that growth, um, compound for you? So photography, the thing about photography is it doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can do, you can do a restoration and you'd be like, that was amazing. And you take a photo of it and you look at it and you'd be like, what the, <laughs> like, like I've left flash on the side. There's yeah. a divot on the thing. Oh, the occlusion, occlusion's not polished properly. The anatomy looks really crappy and it's just right there in front of you. And it really humbles you as to like how good a clinician you are. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I like about photography. But the other thing it also does, it allows you to, to communicate it with other clinicians be like, Hey, this is what I've done. How do I make this better? Like, see that flash on that photo? Like, how do I, how do you get rid of that? So it allows you to communicate and get, get feedback a lot faster mm-hmm. because without it, you're relying on who your nurse to tell you you've done a good job and the nurse, you know, they're good, but they don't know exactly what you're looking for. Yes. So then how did you know, I mean, how did you improve on your photography game? Cause you know, a lot of recent graduates come to you and be like, Hey, I can't do like three fillings in like 60 minutes with rubber dam anatomy and photography all together. Yeah. Well, look, there's two questions you've got there. Uh, one is how did I learn about photography? And two is like, how do you set realistic expectations? Right. So in terms of how I learned about photography was there was a guy called Ed McLaren, um, who was like one of the go-to photography people at the time. He was from America. Right. Um, and this was, in just when digital SLRs were coming out. So this is like all the craze. And I went to a course of his um, and he told me what camera to buy. And I just bought exactly what, what he said. Um, mm-hmm. And I just started using those settings. And I, again, as soon as I got the camera, I would use it for every patient after that, because I knew that the more photos I took, the better I'd get at it. Um, but then not only that, uh, photography is not just limited to dental. So there was a lot of information out there on YouTube and just other photography courses. So I did like a, um, a landscape photography course in New Zealand, which was mm-hmm. fantastic, but it taught me concepts of, of camera skills that I, that I didn't learn from, from just taking dental photography. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot more of training, I guess, in terms of, of outside of dentistry in terms of CPD stuff. But then, I guess, I guess the one thing that I'm really good at is consolidating something complex into something simple. Yeah. And I've done that with, with all facets of life. And so I came up with, I got all this information condensed into something really simple that I could use that mm-hmm. let me change my settings to get the, the picture that I wanted straight away. And that's what I teach my associates too. Mm-hmm. So that's part one is you just need to find some people doing photography courses, whether it's dental or non-dental and just get familiar with the camera. And the other thing is getting familiar with the camera, like take your camera out with you. Um, Don't just use your phone. So if you use your your phone to to take photos, it does everything for you. It sets all the exposures, it sets all the stuff. So you need to go out and be like, let me take a photo of of my holidays. 
um, and actually take your dental camera with a different lens um, and like use the camera. But yeah. I think the second question that you, you implied, which I think is more fundamental, is you're a new grad. How do you do three fillings, rubber dam, and photography in 60 minutes? Mm -hmm. How do you communicate to someone? You know, most people have a scale and clean an exam in 30 minutes, right? Yeah. So they want to do that. How long does a scale and clean take? I haven't done one in decades, so tell me. <laughs> uh, yeah. 15 minutes? Yeah, 30, 15, yeah, 15, 30, yeah. Depending 15, how long, so, yeah. So 15 minutes. Um, and then to take bite wings, another five minutes. Yeah. So in your half an hour examination, scale and clean appointment, you've already spent 20 minutes on clinical stuff. Now you have about five minutes to discuss stuff and maybe five minutes for the nurse to change over the room. So you have five minutes of communication that you have with a patient. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to the concept of how do you do photos and rubber dam and three films in 60 minutes. You can't is the answer. Not if you want to get good at it. So you got to give yourself that longer period of time because there's, there's this concept that people have, which is wrong, which is practice makes perfect. Um, I did some martial arts when I was younger and I had a sensei and he'd say, he'd tell us all of them. He'd say, practice does not make perfect. He'd say perfect practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. So you need to practice things slow enough and perfectly enough to get good at it. And as you practice it perfectly, you actually get faster and faster and get perfect at it. So that's unfortunately the truth that no one wants to hear is that if you want to get good at something and be really good at it, you've got to give yourself that time. But then you've got to understand you're going to take a hit in, in income while you're doing that. So mm -hmm. there's, there's going to be a trade-off. Yeah. I, I am seeing... <laughs> I am seeing a reoccurring thing here, which is you look outside of dentistry to um, incorporate for learnings and teachings to incorporate it into your own dentistry. Yeah, because again, like if I just go to dental people, I'm going to be thinking like how a dental person thinks and then be doing what a dental person does. And I'm going to get the same result as every other dental person does. So I want to get to this, this, uh, this end and think differently. Mm -hmm. And there's so many other... Um, fields out there that we can we can utilize i mean i remember i remember going to um booking in for a course on nlp neuro-linguistic programming yes and i got there and i booked myself into the uh, the wrong course mm -hmm. it was a course on um education i think it was and i was it was in sydney i'd already spent the the flights, taking time off work. And I was there and I was like, what do I do now? Do I go off and like party for the next two days? And I was like, you know what? Like maybe life has faded me to, to do this course. Mm. I spent two days with life coaches um, learning about how to, how to teach concepts to people, which I thought would have no effect, uh, impact on me at that point in life. Um, but now that I'm teaching people and I'm like, helping people understand concepts all that stuff that i learned makes so much sense mm -hmm. a bit like you know steve jobs he did a calligraphy class mm -hmm. um when he was in at uni and ended up being how he designed fonts later on for for the mac um so that's why i'm always a big advocate of going outside dentistry and learning as much as you can from as many places as possible and the the secret is that non-dental courses are much cheaper than dental courses <laughs> i was gonna uh, say <laughs> yeah. so you end up getting a lot of information that's not 
tailored to you specifically. So you need to put a bit more work into it. But if you're able to, to take those concepts and drag it into your life, you can learn a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, okay. Then that's, then there's the financial thing that you were saying. I mean, talk to me about that. Like, when did you realize how'd you kind of go about it? In terms of, um, you were saying it was helped you stack up like a modifier for you. Oh yeah. Right. So you've got the concept, a modifier. Um, (laughs) so I didn't realize, I didn't, I didn't realize they were modifiers until much, much, much later on. So I just did it because I was like, I need these things in order to, to function. Like the practice wasn't doing so well at the, at the start. So, you know, I took over from an older uh, Caucasian male and I was non-Caucasian and, and much younger. And we lost a lot of our patient base, like very, very, very fast. And I didn't, I was too naive to realize or understand that that was even a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to believe that was a concept, but later on in life, I've decided that, look, it probably was a contributing factor, but we got to a point in the practice where we had, you know, less than $10,000 in the bank account. Um, and if anyone, anyone listening to this that runs a practice knows that $10,000 can be eaten up in a week, uh, in a dental practice, like we were like right at the, the very base mm-hmm. of going bankrupt. And so I just knew that I needed help in order to, to survive. And so I didn't realize these were modifiers until very, very recently where I've been, I've been thinking about it. And I've been thinking like, there's some things that I did that made my life so much easier later on, because I'm looking at other people that didn't do those things and they struggle with very basic concepts that I have no troubles with. Mm -hmm. Like I had no troubles with getting patients to do a procedure once I did a course on it, like implants are my new thing at the moment. Um, and you know, I had 40 people lined up for implants when I decided to do an implant, mm-hmm. um, where I, you know, other people in my course were saying like, they were struggling to get one person to come in. Like they didn't, they couldn't figure out how that worked, how that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with photography or even finance. Like my production is a lot higher than, than a lot of other people in my, um, I guess, um, bracket. Mm-hmm. And so. I'm like, well, why, why did that happen? And I've realized that there's some things that I did um, that helped me, um, you know, magnify and boost what I did. So I went to a course, I guess, I guess the real eye open in terms of finances mm-hmm. was I went to a course in America um, about practice management. And okay. there was, the room was probably full of 50 or 60 American dentists. And they were all much older than me, like mm-hmm. all the much older than me. And they were all in severe debt and had no chance of retirement anytime soon. Wow. And it just blew, it really blew my mind. I was like, I was like, I don't understand how someone that makes this much income could be in this much financial issues this later in life. Yeah. Um, and I realized that it was because that I had a solid financial base from when I was younger that I'd made decisions that, that helped me stack later on. Like I really didn't get myself into, I guess I got myself to good debt. Like there's good debt and there's bad debt. Um, and a lot of these people were only at the age of 50 or 55 or 60 were understand concept of good and bad debt. Um, you know, and, and I, I knew this when I, before I was 18 from, you know, and I don't know why I just, I was interested in finance. So I started reading books and 
Um, so that's why I think, and I was speaking to someone the other day who's been a dentist for four or five years and didn't know how to set up his company structure. And so he was paying a lot more in tax and, and all sorts of things than he needed to. So, you know, he reckoned that I probably saved him about 10 to 15 years of his working life, you know, after spending three or four hours with him, um, just understanding concepts of how finance works. So he's not wasting money and is able to structure things for him and his family. So there are things that you do at the very start, like setting your structure or understanding about what an asset means mm -hmm. that really stacks up later on. So when you get, you know, when you're forties, um, you're thinking to yourself, well, I've got all these assets that are built up behind me all for all that time. Where if you didn't, right, this is where it comes in. Where if you didn't and you were just spending money and buying stuff that you liked, then you get to 40 and you're like, well, what have I got? Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean by, you know, these modifiers that stack up later on. Exactly the same with, with communication. So we only need 20 new patients a month, maybe 30 new patients a month of, for six chairs to keep our practice booked up for months in advance. And I've heard of practices that need hundreds of patients a month just be booked up two weeks in advance. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is our communication skills are so good that our retention is so great that we yeah. don't need that many people to fill our books. Like if we got a hundred new patients a month, I wouldn't know what we'd do with it. We'd have to, we'd have to go to a 20 chair practice. Like, I don't know what we do. And so, and so, you know, and so people look at me like, How, what do you mean? Everyone wants more new patients. I'm like, I seriously don't have any time in my books for new patients right now. Like we're, we're like frantically getting new dentists on board to try and like take up the need. Yeah. Um, and we do very little marketing. And that's the modifier I'm speaking about. So because we've got this skill, we have to spend less money on marketing. We don't need as many patients. So if we get a drop from say, 30 new patients to 25 new patients, it does make a huge impact on us, mm -hmm. right? A 20% reduction. Yes. Um, well, if somebody else goes from hundred to 80, like it would make a huge impact on their, on their practice. Yeah. So we get to like write out this stuff. So you're saying that it was, uh, you're reading books. That's how you build your financial literacy and understanding. Uh, it wasn't a particular, um, uh, course or anything, someone that you lean to, to, to build that understanding. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So there wasn't, even now, I don't think there is anyone in dental that, that does that. In fact, it's, I'm thinking about starting up a program uh, for these modifiers, maybe next year or so, because I'm like, now that I thought of it, I'm like, it'd be good for someone to, to be teaching these modifiers to new grads early on so that they have that, that skill base. Are we getting and the inside scoop right now? Yeah, you, you actually you probably are, actually. <laughs> You've heard it first here. <laughs> um, because because I, I, think it, I think it is really that important. Um, but when I was doing it, they're really, like, I, I tried speaking to my accountant. Um, and my accountant was just, it's like, it's like patients speaking to a lot of dentists. They know so much about a topic that they can't give you any usable information when you're starting off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was talking about creditors and debtors and like double entry accounting systems. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't, it makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Then I started talking to my principal dentist um, and I realized that he probably wasn't the great at financial management himself either. And so then I was like, well, where do I go to? So then I looked for courses and I found a lot of courses 
that did financial stuff were there to sell me more courses on financial stuff. And so I find that really irritating. Mm-hmm. Like if I go to a course and I pay money, then I want the answers. I don't want to come to, to another course. Um, and then I had books and with books, like you've got to go through a lot of time and effort in order to, to get like the little crux of information that you need, which is why I'm, I'm thinking like, let me just summarize and make something that is easy to understand for people to, to get and concept at an early age and set themselves up so that they can, they can do better later on. But yeah, I can't, I can't give you a, a person to go to. I'm sorry at the moment. Just lots That's okay. Of That's okay. Lot of books. Yeah. And YouTube. Um, sorry. And YouTube. There's a lot of good people on YouTube that gives financial like stuff, but you've got, you've got to be careful, right? Yeah. Like, like I asked for advice on who you ask for advice and who you listen to. Because I asked for advice about ortho from an orthodontist when I was, when I was in new grad, mm-hmm. I was like, look, I'd like to get into ortho. Um, and I'm looking at these courses. What do you think? And what do you think the orthodontist told me? He's like, look, those courses, they're not worth it. If you want to do ortho, go and get your masters in it and become an orthodontist. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is some guy I respect. I'm not going to do these courses. So I didn't do them in hindsight. I'm thinking I probably should have done those courses mm-hmm. because I would have been, my ortho skill set would have been much higher from when we started a lot earlier. Um, but I listened to someone that had a vested interest in me not doing, not doing ortho. Mm-hmm. And so you get the same kind of concepts with, you know, when you look at YouTube videos of finances, like what's their motive? Are they trying yes. to sell you a course? Are they trying to sell you a program? Like, what is it that they want from you? Is it just for views? Is it just clickbait? Um, and, and this is the hard concept to like, get your head around. Like who, who has, who has the answers that doesn't want anything from me? Yes. Uh, I the think truth one, is everyone wants something from me. <laughs> I think, uh, one of our previous guests, um, Katie put it in an interesting perspective as well, which was that sometimes these courses that were created wasn't around when they were on like learning about ortho. And so they couldn't tell you um, what this course is like because they've never gone through it. Yeah, uh, true. And there's, because there's a lot of courses heading up, like, you know, there's a good thing that CPE junkies out there because, <laughs> you know, with, without a forum to conglomerate it all, like, like, how do you, how do you know, you know, what's out there and who to do and who do you trust? Like, you know, do you trust reviews? I mean, maybe, but how do you know reviews are actually honest and not like for some kind of benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, and no one can put a bad review up, right? Like they're, they're usually the best sources is yes. you look at the, the worst review and you see, can you tolerate that? But you're not allowed to because of defamation laws and, and things like that. And people get angry and upset with you. Mm-hmm. So you only get the good reviews. You never get the bad reviews. So, so how do you know which way to go? Yeah. Um, it's a really, really hard concept. Mm. Um, and then you have competitors like you know there's a lot of politics and cpd-ness too so how do you know that your competitors aren't putting you down to to not so it's it's a really it's a minefield to really slog through you know who to see and what courses to do and, and who to trust yeah what are your so i mean i just want to come back to the base that you said that okay so now you've got um the, the communication you've got the photography you've got the financial side you've got that as your base now 
So yeah. now I'm ready to get going. I'm gonna go and start learning because I know you're, you don't just slow down on CPD, right? Oh, like no. you just said, you jumped into ortho, you jumped into implants now as well. Yeah. So tell me how that all kind of like starts to get going. So, so what happens usually, um, and all dentists know this, is you get some kind of FOMO, right? If you're missing out. <laughs> if not in Instagram, it probably wasn't Facebook back then, hey? Yeah. That's right. Like someone does something, you're like, what? Like, like FOMO. Um, and, and so you want to do what they can do. And so then you're like, what do I need to do to, to get that? And so, um, you know, anterior veneers or, you know, uh, my, my first thing was bonded restorative work. So that was one of the, once I got the foundations right, um, that was one of the first things that I, that I started on because mm -hmm. it was a new concept back then. Yeah. You, know, you, could, you mentioned you could, Pascal Manier earlier yeah. on. Yeah. He was, he was my hero. Like he blew my mind because before then it was conventional crown preps. Like you, you cut the bejesus out of a tooth and you friction gripped it in with some kind of cement and it just stuck there with friction. Like that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And then this guy came along and was like, nah, you can just like do a tabletop and like stick a, stick a thing on there and we'll protect the tooth. <laughs> I'm like, are you nuts? <laughs> and he's like, you can margin elevate, you can do like immediate dentine seal. It was, it was a fantastic course. Like it was, it really blew my mind. Um, and I think he does photography too, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and so so I did that and I was blown away. And so I practiced on, on these Fasaka models and then I did my first one on a tooth. And, you know, he talks about, you know, bonding with um, heated composite, which yeah. is a whole other concept again, right? So you not only are you sticking these, these things up with no retention or, or resistance form, but you're also sticking them with like composite. Like, you're like how, does, how does it work? So I did that for a while and that worked out really well. Um, and I was really proud of that because then I had the photography skills to take photos of all this cool work that I was doing. And then I got to give other people FOMO. Like that's like the pinnacle of, of dentistry, right? Yeah. <laughs> is, to, is to give other people FOMO. Um, and so, and so I guess that's, that's kind of how it, it started is that I looked at something that someone else did and I was like, well, I want to do that. Um, in terms of ortho, the thing that led me to author was I started to do full mouth rehabs. So go from indirect work, you do a lot of those, and then you realize that now you can like change someone's entire smile. And what you realize when you start doing full mouth rehab is that occlusion becomes really important. Mm -hmm. And one of the best teachers of occlusion is orthodontics. Um, and it's like one of these areas where you learn about it and the veil has been lifted and you see all these things that you've never noticed before. Um, and so that's how I got into author. I didn't really want to do author mm -hmm. because, you know, someone had told me that you had to do a, a, you know, a master's in it. And I really believed it. Um, but I realized that I needed to have some basic understanding of ortho in order to do prosthetic work. And then as I learned more ortho, I realized it probably wasn't as difficult as, as I thought it was going to be. So, and I enjoyed it because, you know, ortho is very slow, slow work. Like you see, it's, it's one of the only procedures I think people are kind of happy to see you. They come in, you like 
change a wire or you do something with a bracket and they go away. There's no anesthetic. There's no, you know, extracting teeth generally. Um, and so, you, you know, it, it's kind of very, you know, nice dentistry to do, mm-hmm. very elegant dentistry to do. Um, and so as I did more and more of it, I realized I liked more and more. So I did more and more courses on that as well. Um, and I think at some point, if you like something enough, you need to do a program on it mm-hmm. because a two day course or a mini course gives you a little bit of information, but you need continuity with someone yes. in order to, to build your skill set. And to like have problems that start at the start of the course mm-hmm. that eventually is at the end of the course. And they'll be saying, well, remember how you did that? That's why you got this. And then that's when things start to click in your brain and, and, and make things happen. So, so I think eventually whatever thing you're interested in, do short course to begin with, mm-hmm. but eventually you need to do like a longer, you know, program in order yeah. to get the full concept understanding of it. Yeah, because like you're in a situation where you don't have a senior um, um, clinician by your side in clinic to help you out. How do you kind of work through that minefield? You need nerves of steel, um, right? You, you do. I mean, yeah. I, I joke to my associates all the time. I say to them, I've got all the hard work for you. Like, <laughs> you just need to do what I've done. Um, but I'm like, back, in, back when I was doing this, there's no one that would save me. Yeah. Like, like what, would I, what would I do? So that's where building relationship with specialists is important when you're doing this because you need someone to bail you out if something goes, goes pear-shaped. So, you know, um, I remember for my very first implant, uh, Bin Tran, who's a periodontist in, in Morning, uh, Frankston, um, came down, actually held my hand with me as I was placing my first implant. Mm. And, you know, I was open with him. I was like, look, I'd like to do implants. I'm not going to do all the complex ones, but I'd like to do a few simple ones. Can you help me out with it? And he came and, and helped me out. And he's had a holy respect for me for, for doing that. Um, same thing with, you know, extractions. There's usually going to be a max fax surgeon in the area that you refer to. I just say, be open, honest with them. Tell them what you're thinking of doing. You know, I want to do more wisdom teeth surgery. You know, would you help me out with it if I get into trouble? Um, can I send you, you know, OPGs of cases that, you know, I think are a borderline? Could you help me out with that? Um, and that's where mentors come in too. Like if you get mentors, you're able to, to talk to them about it, to say, you know, hey, this is what I'm doing. Is this beyond my skill level or my scope? So that's the most important thing, right? Like you just want to make sure that you're not doing something that you're not seeing the whole picture about, mm-hmm. right? Like trying to do a full math rehab and someone with a horrible cant. Like if you notice that cant, like when you put the, the crayons in, mm-hmm. it's too late about it. So you need someone to be able to be like, oh no, that's not a case for you because of these considerations. So, so I think that's where people should go now. For me, all I had was, was um, specialists. Yeah. So I did that and I started things slowly with a lot of time so that if something did go wrong, I could do something about it at that point. Yeah. Because, okay, so um, yeah. So how did you go into with your implant journey side of things as well? Um, implants, implants was, was complicated. Yeah. These implants started getting really complicated. Like when we start off, there was like Astra, Strauman and Nobel. In fact, Nobel was what most dentists used. 
Mm-hmm. And now it was very a, um, supply and manufacturer kind of based CPD, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So they would do their own CPD for their their own products. Um, and so I, what I did was I did restorative implant work to begin with, and I did that for for years and years and years, because until you understand the restorative part, the surgery part, you'll you won't know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people know now that implants are restorative based. Like you place an implant because of what you want to do on top of it, not because where the bone is. But without true understanding of how that works, it becomes really difficult to know, like, should I put an implant here or not? So I did this by accident because we just didn't have, like, placing the implant was so out there that we wouldn't do it. So we just all started with restorative work. But I found that that, worked out really well. And that was really expensive, not only for the courses, but for the mistakes you made. Mm-hmm. You know, my first, my first implant case was an implant bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that patient could have literally walked in the practice store. I could have given them $2,000 cash and they could have walked out and I would have been better financially than I was treating that patient. Wow. It, was just, it was just a disaster. Yeah. Um, I, I fractured a screw on a head. It was stuck in there. It had to be drilled out. There's just a whole bunch of things that happened, mm-hmm. but I learned a lot. Yeah. And so even though financially I wasn't great, it wasn't great for me. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from it. And that's, I guess, one of the things that kept me going through my CPD journey is when something didn't go well, my mental concept, again, thinking differently was rather than thinking, oh no, I failed, oh look, this is terrible. My thinking was, this is just more CPD. Mm-hmm. I'm, not tra- I'm not paying you know, a lecturer, I'm paying this patient now to train me in, in something that I didn't know about before. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know about fractured heads of implant screws before this patient turned up, but now I know a lot about them. You know, So it was an expensive journey, but it, it was part of it. So I guess this is a consideration that a lot of dentists don't think about mm-hmm. is that the more complex work you do, the more of a buffer you need in terms of finances in order to do that procedure. Yeah. Like if a, if a filling fails, you replace it, you know, you, or you pay someone else $200 to replace the filling. If a crown yeah. fails, you know, now it's heading up to $2,000. Mm-hmm. Um, if an implant fails, you know, you're getting up to five to $7,000 um, if it can. Um, if you do a full mouth rehab, you're looking at $50,000 now. So, you know, with great risk comes great reward, but you need to understand there is that balance. That yeah. I find it interesting that to your point that that massive case on your, with the implant bridge failing didn't like set you back and um, put you off implants. It kind of compelled you to go and learn and push yourself more to kind of get better at it because for a lot of people they they're like that's it like i just need to take a break from it um Mm -hmm. and then kind of uh build back confidence slowly uh or just leave it and just drop it and then dive in later yeah look it came from a concept that i learned about that we do a lot as humans so not only did i learn about dental stuff but i learned a lot about psychology and and just life skills Mm -hmm. uh, because i needed them um but one of the things that I learned was that we base, we base the rules we make of our lives from a sample size of one, mm-hmm. right? So something will happen in our lives that isn't great. 
and we will make a rule about that. We'll be like, well, for me, I could have been like, I did one that implant bridge, it failed. And like, I'm never doing implants ever again. Yeah. Right. We make a rule about our lives from a sample size of one. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a researcher. If you made papers and rules based on that, what kind of researcher would you be? Be just uh, case case um, case studies only. Hey? Case studies, right? Yeah, like low level. Respected. Yeah, the lowest the lowest rung, the lowest rung. And so, as scientists, we know this, but we don't know it. And so because I'd done other learning, I'd realized that that was the case. I'm like, all right, like I beat myself up about it. Don't, don't fret about that. Like I, I went for a big drive, you know, I thought I should give up dentistry, all those kinds of things, as we all do when things don't go our way um, because we're high achievers. So if we don't achieve, we're not used to, to failure. Um, but I realized from my other learnings that this was sample size of one. Now, if my next four or five implants had all failed, and that might've been different. I might've been like, this is not for me. This is mm-hmm. not great. But I couldn't make the decision of a sample size of one. So I just decided to learn more and then try again. And it worked out. Um, and I, and I'm, you know, I do a lot of implants now. Um, but that's like with everything in life. You, know, you need to really make sure that you're not making rules from a sample size of one. You know, yeah. you work in a rural practice and it doesn't work out. You're like, I'll never work in a rural practice again. Like maybe it was just that one practice. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to make these big judgment calls without much data. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, look, there's, Dr. Tiff, there's so many more questions I want to ask you, but I'll wrap it up today with, um, yeah. if you could give advice to your younger self uh, now, what would it be? Oh, good question. So advice to younger Dr. Tiv is um, there's two, there's, there's three bits of advice, really, I think. One is there's modifiers that will help everything else you do. So figure out what those are and learn about those. Secondly, is what we talked about is that, you know, don't make life rules in a sample size of one. And I think the last one is when you see something fantastic on Facebook and Instagram, realize that the, that you not being able to replicate it is okay. Is it's very similar to you seeing a picture, a painting by Picasso or Monet and you getting out and trying it yourself and being like, I can't do it. And then beating yourself up about it. Like there are artists out there that are just, naturally talented and put a lot of time and effort into what they've done and to compare yourself to that artist is just ripe for heartache and failure so don't do that mm. all right well dr tiv thank you for coming on the show today um if I've you can let people know how they can find you or what you've got going on in your life sure um so you can i've got a website drtiv.com um or you can find me on instagram dr.tiv um or my youtube channel um youtube uh, just dr tiv on youtube so dr tiv is my stage name so look that up and you should find it um but yeah so so yeah so if you need any questions or you need to ask me anything happy to answer or on facebook i'm usually on any of those forums and ask them. if you like this episode drop a comment below on your favorite part or leave a review don't forget to share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next episode of cp junkie podcast